You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. Welcome to Commons Conversations, a series of interviews with campaigners sharing their experiences and insights into activism, learning in movements, radical history and more. Program is broadcast by Community Radio 3CR and produced by the Commons Social Change Library a website containing over 1,000 resources for campaigners, which can be accessed for free at commonslibrary.org. In today's conversation, writer, speaker and disability rights advocate Ellie Day Marchelia chats with writer and campaigner Elle Gibbs. This is something the two regularly do on a Friday, and we're honoured to share their discussion regarding experiences of campaigning around youth rights, economic justice, disability rights and other issues. We also hear them talk about how campaigns can become more effective, strategic and accessible, about learning from mistakes, and they discuss the importance of rest and fun in creating sustainable, deep and lasting change. We're talking today about what has to be my absolute favourite topic, and I think it's yours too. And so I think we're a bit like Kitty with like excitement that we get to spend this time together and we actually get to really deep dive into something we both care about, which is campaigning to create real tangible change. And you've been campaigning for a very long time in different ways, in different aspects. And I want you to think about maybe your first campaign you worked on and what has been the biggest kind of campaigning innovation since that first campaign? What's the biggest change in campaigning that you've seen over your time? Oh, that's really interesting. Uh, I think I did a lot of campaigns uh, to make things fairer from when I was a little kid. I've always Mm. had a very strong sense of that's not fair and uh, a bit of the oldest child uh, uh, responsibility to fix things. Um, yeah, me so too. I've always had that temperament that it's it's my responsibility to fix things. But I think the first campaigns, formal campaigns that I really got involved in were when I w- worked in the community sector. So I started working in the community sector from my early 20s and mm. uh, in a volunteer basis, uh, you know, I worked at a volunteer basis at a community centre uh, for youth centres, homelessness youth homelessness places, all sorts of things. Um, And the first ones I really were involved with were campaigns around public space because the 90s, which is well before you were doing campaigns, Ellie, um, there was... Maybe the decade I was born in. (laughs) Indeed. There was a lot of big campaigns, particularly in New South Wales by the then Labor government, um, to deal with youth crime gangs. Mm. And there was this whole thing about... Uh, young people are out of control and young people wearing their baseball caps backwards and this is Bob Carr, who was the Premier mm. at the time. And It sounds so, like Queensland now. Well, it's yeah. not a, It's not a something, you know, people have been complaining about young people in public space for thousands of years. Yeah. Uh, but they tried to introduce a bunch of laws around this. And so I did some reporting because I was training to be a journalist at the time and worked with the Youth Peaks and so... We ran uh, events with young people who were, you know, some of those young people from Western Sydney uh, talking about what it meant to them uh, and interviewing politicians and giving them a hard time, which was great fun. 
And then uh, for Youth Week, a whole lot of young people camped out in tents behind the New South Wales Parliament House. Wow. They had a sit-in to yell at the government about uh, why the laws they were planning to pass, which would have said young people couldn't be in groups of more than three. You were not allowed to be a a cat backwards. Um, (laughs) Like there was a whole lot of this incredibly draconian legislation. Like we could be... Um, it, That's it, tighter than like a outlawed bikey gang. Exactly. So yeah. the, it, the legislation was defeated and, you know, that big youth protest and I reported on it and it was all very exciting and, you know, I felt like a real journalist reporting <laughs> on this great big protest and it was a really uh, great campaign uh, to be part of and to be supporting young people themselves, to like teenagers to be taking part in it and to holding politicians to account. So I think... Uh, it really set a kind of template for the way that I've tried to do the campaigns and things that I've been part of uh, ever since. And it certainly gave me an insight into, you know, people power, you know, that showing up, protest, having fun, being innovative in how you do things, but, but, you know, holding politicians to account and saying what you're doing is outrageous (laughs) and that the people themselves who were affected, and in this case it was young people, particularly First Nations young people, young people from refugee and migrant backgrounds, poor young people and young people from Western Sydney, uh, really said to the politicians, this is outrageous. You know, you're not going to do this in Mosman, uh, which is a wealthy part of Sydney, you're going to do it in Bankstown. And they were totally right. It's so funny that you said the word fun there because I'm always talking in campaigns about fun and everyone's always like, we've got too much to do to think about fun. (laughs) And I always say to people, no one wants to join a team that looks like they hate each other and then they're hating what they're doing. If you look like you're having fun, people want to join along. Like fun is such an underrated thing. you know, energy of a campaign, isn't it? Like in in the hustle and bustle to get stuff done, fun gets lost along the way and it's such a a motivating factor for people to join along. Absolutely, Um, absolutely. I mean, you you join a campaign because you have a passion and you're keen and you see an injustice in the world. And, yes, a lot of that is really serious, but joining together with other people is a great thing to do and you get to meet other people and work together and it doesn't all have to be serious. And I think if it is all serious all the time, um, I think you miss some of the good stuff, which is forming friendships and relationships that are the core of how we can make change. Yeah, absolutely. Now, one thing that I'm constantly thinking about is how do we make campaigns more accessible? Because the traditional tactics we use in campaigning, door knocking, letterboxing, phone calling, are really, really inaccessible, right? But they work, you know? One-on-one conversations with people work. So I'm always thinking about how can we start to make campaigning more accessible is it about breaking down those traditional tactics or is it about creating new tactics what are your thoughts on it i think it's a combination of those plus a third one Mm -hmm. i think that disabled people have been using innovative and accessible tactics to do campaigns for a really long time and i think one of the things that i've really focused on because a lot of the time over the last 30 years i've been stuck at home so being stuck at home for like during COVID for lots of people was like, wow, this is terrible. I'm like, 
Yep. My reality. This is mostly my life. So um, a lot of the time I have done a lot of that kind of activism uh, online and the organising online. Like we did a lot of, (laughs) I've done some very silly things over the years, but one of the things that we did uh, in the 2004 election, I think it was, there was a um, Billionaires for Bush. There was a campaign for George Bush. It was a satirical campaign around, you know, people dressed up as billionaires and, you know, to demonstrate, uh, you know, uh, money in politics and that kind of stuff. So we there yeah. was an adoption of this in Australia called Liars for Howard. And so, you know, and I remember being extremely sick at the time and we did a lot of the organising via email because it was the olden days and email groups and uh, posting on blogs, you know, again, the olden days uh, to organise these events. But then we would go and do these snap events in public, like standing in Martin Place, holding signs going, you know, Medicare is a privilege, not a right and handing out flyers stuff. Of course, it was completely unsuccessful. Howard got control of both houses of parliament. <laughs> you know, like it's not, a, it wasn't a successful. I don't think that was because of you. It wasn't because of me, it, but yeah. uh, our campaign. But it was one of those ones of trying something new, trying a mostly online, uh, you know, mo- you know, flash mob type events and then doing yeah. the occasional thing in public. Like I think we only ever did about four or five in-person events. And the rest of it was these online personas where we were just pretending and basically trolling. It was just a large trolling exercise. Uh, it was a lot of fun, but it was Which also... Which is how most of our elections, like, are completely <laughs> done these days. Elections exactly. are just massive trolling yeah. events. But a lot yeah. of these things, these you know, there was a lot of us who were testing out, how, how do you do this online? And for me, it was it was, I was really excited about it because it meant I could participate. And I didn't just have to sit on the sidelines and be frustrated. I could actually participate as a writer, as, you know, a person sending emails and doing all of that stuff. I could actually do that. So mm-hmm. a lot of the the techniques and the tricks and the tools that I've got that I use today are things that I've learned in the early 2000s when I literally was stuck at home for a long period of time. I was in hospital for a long time and... And then I refused point blank to go back to hospital and they uh, there was a sort of degree of supports that were cobbled together to keep me at home. But I was stuck at home. I had 10 hours a week of work that helped with my disability support pension pay the rent. And I just, to distract myself from what was happening to my body and everything else, um, I just got incredibly obsessed with online campaigning. <laughs> Oh, look, I um, had to retell the story recently that how I became obsessed with American politics is I got incredibly unwell as a, you know, 13, 14-year-old in 2007 and I just became obsessed with the US Democratic primary, like obsessed to the point where I knew all the electoral, like, votes in each state and when they were coming up for Super Tuesday and I had the map on the hospital wall and my doctors knew not to interrupt me during PBS news hour. That was like <laughs> my one hour of joy. Um I think you're so right. I think it's pretty incredible how how quickly people with disability are able to use online tools in the Defend Our NDIS campaign. You know, we did 10 virtual town halls in five days um, and people with disability showed up. Like, 
But then they also really showed up when it came to needing that Melbourne protest in the final week. So um, we're, we are the hybrid kind of campaigners, aren't we? Oh, 100%. And I think that, you know, there are people that I know on Twitter that I first met online 20 years ago who were part of that original blogging kind of explosion that happened and where there were many of us talking about being disabled, being queer, you know, wanting change in the world. You know, it was a conservative government and here and in the US it was a very difficult time with the war and it was one of those uh, times where it didn't feel like there was a lot of questions about where does the progressive government come from? Where does the progressive future come from? We kept losing elections. So there was a lot of questioning about tactics and about strategy. And for us as disabled people, how did we get into that game? Uh, and how did we actually then start to talk about ourselves? I mean, I wasn't connected with the disability rights movement here. So the, so the people who were organising around the Disability Discrimination Act or even before that, the Disability Services Act, and then doing all of that preliminary work before the NDIS, like Leslie Hall and all of that stuff, I was completely disconnected from that. I didn't mm. uh, know that, but I was very involved in other kinds of politics. And so um, when I started working on an election campaign in 2006, everyone just kind of went, where did you come from? Like, <laughs> how did you come I love that moment. Yeah, out of nowhere with all of these skills and knowledges. And I'm like, I said, been sick for a really long time. And... But they hadn't, it didn't quite click with them uh, how a disabled person who was suddenly well, well enough to work on an election campaign, uh, could, they couldn't quite, they never quite got it uh, at all. That's absolutely the 2022 election for me, everyone being like, where did you come from and where did you get (laughs) these skills from? And I'm like, "I'm, I'm Ellie and I'm from Queensland, I'm here to help. Like, I'm um, just still a line from Kevin now. Boobab Jazz. The Milky Way looks good in the night skies. The stars open a short for my dark eyes. Complex hey, I'm Lady Lash. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, the voice of the set. 3CR is so awesome, giving the platform for people's voices to be heard and people's gifts to be heard. And always remember that you are amazing. From every corner of the land, womankind arise! Women on the Line, a current affairs program devoted to women's voices, covering a diversity of women's interests and hearing women's perspectives on current affairs. Erosion of human rights leads directly and inevitably to erosion of human security. We do not accept the denial of our rights because the right to have a say over our country is our life. Women on the Line. Tune in on Mondays at 8.30am and Wednesdays at 6am on 3CR Community Radio, 8.55am. And streaming live at 3cr.org.au. You're listening to Commons Conversations, a series of interviews about campaigns for social change. In today's program, writer, speaker and disability rights advocate Ellie day Marshallier chats with writer and campaigner Elle Gibbs about their experiences and insights regarding change making. It's hard to ask someone about their biggest campaign failure, 
But I don't talk. I don't mean in the sense of like a big campaign loss. I mean like a tactic that just went really wrong, just a real stuff up. Can you think of a time when you you just it just fell over? It just didn't work, and you really learned something powerful from that moment. Mm. Oh well, look, lots of them. I mean, I think. If you are involved in campaigning, you lose most of the time. <laughs> like I really think, you know, like I worked on one election campaign and our principal didn't get re-elected. You know, we worked really, really hard and we used every tool, but it was a change of government election. It was the 2007 election. It was the mudslide and it didn't work. You know, all of what we did didn't work. Uh, I worked on other elections that did work. And so, and we used pretty much the same tactics. It just was the circumstances at the time. When it comes to disability, uh, one of the campaigns that I was part of was a campaign for the Royal Commission. And so we used uh, originally the campaign that I walked into that I, you know, and was told that this is now yours, please continue. And I'm like, okay, um, had used a lot of... Uh, kind of passive language around it and uh, really highlighted the dreadful experiences that people with, with disability had and, ha- and are having right now um, that they wanted the Royal Commission to examine. And it came after the 2015 Senate inquiry that really lifted the lid and shone the, you know, shone the light on the kind of extent of violence and abuse against disabled people. But we, so we, and it wasn't working. So what we were working, we were doing around highlighting this didn't work. People weren't engaging online. People weren't engaging in terms of using the tools. You know, they weren't doing the calls to action or taking action. So we pivoted the campaign and rejigged it to a much more powerful and simple message. And it was about taking action in the face of this overwhelming tide of violence and for Mm -hmm. people with disability to demand that they had their voices heard. So it was a very uh, kind of different frame on a campaign that it, that put people with disability not as passive people in it but as active, saying this is what we need to sort out this problem. And uh, using the Royal Commission as, as the single ask was incredibly important because it meant that every time we, we were doing this, this the talked about violence in any context, the answer was always we need a Royal Commission. Mm. So... Reflecting now back on that campaign, I think I didn't put enough time or uh, work into what was what the Royal Commission would actually do. Like once we won the Royal Commission, what actually would mean then and how would we hold the Royal Commission to account? How would we get the Royal Commission? How do we use the Royal Commission's activities to get change? So when because I literally as you were speaking, I was thinking it's almost like we need another campaign to get our voices heard, even though we still, even though we won the Royal Commission, it feels like our voices aren't heard in this Royal Commission and the Royal Commission, most people don't even know it exists. Like, yeah. so uh, it almost feels like a campaign's needed now. So it's so interesting that you have yeah. that reflection. And I think that's been part of, so in the last two years, I've, you know, now work, I now work as a consultant and I don't work for a particular organisation and I've been able to work with organisations around how do you use the Royal Commission to as a tool and as a tactic to achieve your strategic goal. So if your strategic goal is, 
you know, more uh, changing the situation for First Nations people with with, with disability? Um, how do you use the Royal Commission as a tactic to bring attention to it, to argue for change? Um, this year I've mostly worked with the peak for people with intellectual disability and we've been able to use the Royal Commission uh, hearings particularly to leverage the debate around employment and change the debate and we have been doing that really well. Mm -hmm. And so and we're continuing to do that now and will in the first part of next year as well. So uh, it's been nice to be able to sort of uh, have the, have the op opportunity to fix that to almost like fix the the thing that I couldn't do beforehand, which was be strategic about using the Royal Commission to create change. And I am very worried about the Royal Commission. I don't mm -hmm. think uh, I'm worried about uh, the recommendations. We have no idea which direction they're heading in. They've produced mm -hmm. no interim reports with recommendations. There's been some very worrying statements by the chair and there's a lot of areas that they have just not looked at at all and a lot of places and a lot of voices they haven't heard. So I'm very concerned what, about what they're going to actually recommend. And I'm very concerned about that as well. My concern is that recommendations will come out which are tinkering at the edges of the status quo rather than the kind of, you know, roadmap to structural reform that we actually need to end things like segregation, which is, you know, underpins most violence, abuse and exploitation, like, you know, um, and that's because in large part I feel like there isn't the public pressure on the Royal Commission to, to deliver anything of substance. What role do you think both people with disability but also the organisations that represent them have, what can they be doing over the next year before the Royal Commission releases its recommendations? If you were running the national campaign <laughs> around the Royal Commission, you were put in charge, you were campaign director, what would your advice be around how we make sure we don't walk away from this Royal Commission with nothing but a handful of, like, nice-to-haves but nothing that's going to really revolutionise people with disabilities' lives? Mm. Look, I think one of, the, one of the traps that I think we often fall into in disability advocacy is needing to get all the things. And it is because the problems and the challenges and the barriers that we face are really big. And mm. there are lots of things that are really terribly wrong in the lives of disabled people. And we often try, we say we have to fix all the things. And I really get that. I want to fix <laughs> all the things too. Me too. Yeah. But we have to be a bit more strategic. Yeah. And there is a culture in our national organisations and having worked in many of them uh, where we will work in a way that isn't good for disabled people. And part of that is that we aren't strategic. So being strategic about we have nine months until the Royal Commission reports, what are the key goals that you want to achieve and how do you prioritise one or two big things and yeah. start doing the work around getting those reforms. I think one of the challenges always with a new government is that they work differently. We've had nine years of a coalition government and we've got a brand new government that are super keen, very excited ministers, very keen staff, very keen on getting change. 
and they come to people and say, great, what do you want to do? And everyone goes, all the things right now, you know. The laundry list. (laughs) Exactly. So I think being very specific about the change and very specific about the mechanisms for that change and how much will it cost. So being, you know, if you want to reform, you know, we need all the houses to be painted green, okay, or a different colour. So what colour? Who's going to paint them? When is it going to be done by? Who's going to pay for the paint? What kind of paint are you going to use? Who's going to do the painting? You know, being specific and getting the numbers, doing all of that stuff, and then going and prosecuting your argument. And that is not making a goddamn submission. It's actually doing the work around the advocacy piece, the campaigning, and the I often think people think campaigns have to all be done in public. Uh, some of the best campaigns you would never know about. Yes. They never happen in public. They are all behind the scenes. And I think that is one lesson that. Our and that's not because they're secretive. No. That's because they're built on relationships. Yeah. You know, and, yeah. and the fact that you need to build those relationships, you need to have trust, you need to understand. Like when I go and talk to a bureaucrat, someone in government, someone in an agency, that kind of stuff, I need to understand the pressures on them, what they need from me, how specific I need to be, is publicity helpful, sometimes it is, you know, all of that kind of stuff. And you build that into your advocacy plan, you take advantage of key moments and you be relentless. Like you can't just do a submission and go, but we asked them and they just didn't do it. It doesn't work like that. And I, think I once worked is- on a sorry. I once worked on a campaign where um the opposition called uh my candidate candidate relentless, and we ended up getting a permanent marker and writing on the whiteboard, "Be relentless." And I think that is, it's that constant determination to just keep going and and keep answering the questions, finding the way around. Um, that is. I think people think campaigns are just one in a day, but often they have decades of people's blood, sweat and tears that are poured into it. But there's just a flashpoint that happens where it all comes together. Yeah. I mean, there's a rule in political communication. Tell me three times, you know, and, again, this is in the olden days before social media, but, you know, um, if someone gets a flyer in their letterbox uh answers the door and has a conversation, sees a street stall, picks up a newspaper, like a free newspaper that your party hands out at a train station, they might just start to know that there's even an election on. Yeah. And it's devastating for all the people who are slogging over leaflets and how to vote. Reading them, <laughs> writing them. And I same with say- social media think- ads and all of that stuff. Like mm. If, if you are getting sick of hearing your message, other people are just hearing it for the first time. And that's right. We often don't understand that in the community sector, and I include the disability sector in there. We don't have the skills or understanding around some of those basics about how you do advocacy and how you do campaigns and how you get change. And I know we have had those skills because I read about the campaigns that, you know, activists ran in Melbourne where they squatted in terrace houses to 
raise raise awareness around them being stuck in institutions, you know, people with intellectual disability, you know, creating absolute havoc so they, they could get decent housing. Leslie Hall, you know, crashing the um, Melbourne, what's it called, the, was the Spastic Centre beauty pageant to hold up a sign, oh, you know. Like, a Spastic Centre beauty pageant? <laughs> oh, my God. Wouldn't let women with disability participate. So they, she and another oh. bunch of women with disability secretly bought tickets and got front row and then stood up in the middle of it with these signs, you know. Oh, my so- gosh, and we were born in the wrong era. These are our women. Exactly. So mm. this is the thing. We come from a lineage of these incredible campaigners who just didn't get up give up and the fact that we live independently and we have supports and we do the things that we do is from all of the work that they do so I often feel like I have a responsibility to them as well as to people like you to to do this work well and to learn from the people who came before me so that I can actually uh you know pass on the campaign experience that I have but also so that we can all get better at doing this. You know, we are yeah. hip-hop campaigners, you know, like, but often we do it outside of our institutional structures. Um, oh, absolutely. society cruise down the road each day they got the economic wherewithal we can't afford to pay they got them numbered bank accounts the system assures they win they exploit the population we're on the outside looking in them pillars of society drivers like a tool for them that's cool they drive mercedes benz and porsches Rolls Royce Gillette's lives You can tell the affluent affluent From the status symbols they drive When you're on the dole queue They'll tell you to your face You're a blood, you're on their system And a blight in the human race Them pillars of society Drive us like a tool For them that's cool Well they grace the social pages They always make the news at the church on Sunday, the crowd in the front pews. There's a hierarchy of dominance with a power at the top. And if you think you found the magic key, you find they changed the locks. The pillars of society drive us like a tool for them, that's cool. down the freeway on their dotted line I'd like to make decisions but they won't allow the time it says religion is the opium I see the media's the cocaine 24 hours of propaganda drugging my poor brain them pillars of society drive us like a tool for them that's cool they convert 
titles, the status and dominance on their progeny and their class. Sir, your honor, your grace, your highness were made to polish and lick their brass. You, my friend, can be like them if you have their million-dollar fee. You, but you find the system designed to keep us in line and walking on our knees. And pillars of society drive us like a tool for them. That's cruel. You're listening to Commons Conversations, a series of interviews with campaigners about social change. We just heard the song Pillars of Society from Kev Carmody's 1988 album of the same name. In today's program, writer, speaker and disability rights advocate Ali Desmarchalier chats with writer and campaigner Al Gibbs about their experiences and insights regarding change making. Um, can I ask, because, you know, I think there are some other... Um, groups that are incredibly good at passing on the stories of the, you know, the elders that came before them that, you know, made history, that made change, that pushed for things. I've never heard that story in my life and I'm a disability rights campaigner. Um, Do you have any recommendations of where people can read more on, like, who are the icons of the disability rights movement in Australia? Like, some any suggestions because I think knowing that history and understanding that you come from a, a line of people which inherently you do know you do know that someone fought to get you where you are today but to know those stories and those people's names is just it fills your cup um where did you find all of this out Elle? Oh look there isn't just one place so mm-hmm. Uh, a good place to start is Professor Lorna Hallahan, who is a disabled person. Um, she has written a really amazing history of disability rights activism in Australia uh, okay. for the Royal Commission. And so if you have a look on the Royal Commission's research page, you'll find it there. It's about 130 pages. It's really good. So that will give you a really good history uh, with a lot of context, Um Women with Disabilities Victoria has, and the Disability Resource Centre Victoria have a lot of the Victorian history. Um, and But the challenge is that we all, a lot of disabled people die far too young and a lot of our history gets lost. I was yeah. talking with someone yesterday who's written a history of people with intellectual disability in South Australia. And, again, only some people's histories get remembered. And I think it is incredibly important that more of disability history gets written down and remembered. So um, I have a bunch of things that I've found over the years. Margaret Cooper has written a really, she wrote a fantastic history of women with disabilities Australia that actually looked at why they did it. Like they did a walkout of a particular, of the, uh, I think it was the Disability Rehab International Conference um, and then and so people with disability did a walkout of that because they didn't even get a speaking spot. And so that led to the start of a lot of our organisations altogether 40 years ago. And wow. then because all of the positions were taken by men, all of these women went, oh, stuff that. Yeah. <laughs> 
And there are all of these great stories about what they did in the 80s and the uh, early 90s about trying to work together. So there's a book I've got uh, called Oyster Grit, which is a, a kind of um, a book of stories of women with disability, uh, you, know, you know, from the sort of 40s, 50s and 60s and 70s. Wow. So That's cool. lots of lots of our pioneers in Australia are people who were blind and people who were deaf. They had mm-hmm. organisations right back in the 1800s. Of course, First Nations people had their own inclusion of people with disability. That was very different to the colonialist structures. And when we talk about our history, we have to remember the damage that was done and the disability that was brought by Mm -hmm. the invasion and the colonial stealing of culture and of land and the murder of people was just catastrophic. So uh, that is an important part. And so Scott, uh, Dr. Scott Avery's history, culture is inclusion, is really important as well. Mm. And um, But then the polio waves and the world wars were also really important in terms of so many people who survived polio uh, were very disabled and they are pioneers of the, of the disability rights movement in Australia, as well as people who came back from the wars a lot of the reason we have the DSP and a lot of the Commonwealth Rehab Service and some of those kind of structures came out of the First World War because so many men came back so disabled. And it was such a shock to people. I have a reading list now. Thanks, Al. (laughs) That's going to be fun. I'm going to crack it open. Um, Well, I have one final question for you, which is, I want to know what your most maybe controversial piece of campaigning advice that you wish everyone would follow is. The one that gets heated about and you stand, you sit there and you argue the point with people every single time, but you stand by it and you reckon every campaign, particularly every disability campaigner in the country should be doing. What's your hot take that you wish everyone would pick up? Rest more. Oh. Do less. Yeah. Oh my God. That's really that's one. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. We we need to work out a way of campaigning that suits us. That suits our bodies, suits our minds, suits our disabilities, suits our everything. And we have to make that okay. I think that we have set too much of up of a culture where it's not okay to actually be disabled. And that is bullshit. So I want us to do be smarter, better in our campaigning, more strategic, and not kill each other, kill ourselves trying to do it. Like I just I watch you, me, all of us work until we absolutely drop. And it cannot be the way we do this. So I am determined to try and do figure out a way that we as disabled people can make this sustainable for us to get the change that we want. Because right now what has happened is our organisations are now run by non-disabled people because this pace means and the way that the systems and structures are set up, there is no room for us in our own organisations. Yeah. And that sucks. So Mm. we have to do better and we have to have a different way of doing this. I'm not interested in martyring myself for the cause. Like, no thanks. I want time for gardening. I want time to do nothing. 
I want time for knitting. I want time to hang out with my friends. I don't want to, or it shouldn't be expected that disabled people will campaign at the expense of the rest of their lives. Why else? We, we are campaigning so we have a life, you know, and so that the people that we know who don't have a life have a life, you know. Mm. So the other one is including all disabled people. Like at the moment I'm working with just the most fantastic people with intellectual disability who are have a great deal of expertise about change-making, about the employment work that we're doing and about how to do it really well. And I'm learning an awful lot. But they are often left out of how we do stuff. And I think we as disabled people, we can do better about including yes. people. So they're my two big things. I, I don't know whether that's what you would ask no, me <laughs> Honestly, well, when, when I said a hot take, like when you said rest, I actually like got chills and I took a breath and I was just like, I am so tired. And I know that's like actually a really hard thing to admit in that community because there are people working so hard everywhere and you don't want to be the one that's like, I'm really tired, I can't. But, you know, I was on Q&A last night and like I've done five meetings back to back today. So like. But, I mean, I have an autoimmune disease. I have an autoimmune disease that gave me heart failure six years ago. Like. The fatigue I feel is like thinking through molasses and Mm. I don't get enough rest. I am rooted. But at the moment, you know, I survive on a great deal of coffee and (laughs) Diet Coke and I go to bed at 9 o'clock and none of that is visible in a way that I think is unfair. Um, I've had other disabled people say, I could never do what you do, Elle. And I think, God, what kind of example am I setting? It's terrible. So I think I need to be more honest about the toll this takes on my body and about how I actually manage these periods of really intense work. And But also, like, I talked recently in this project that we're doing that we don't have enough resources and we need more people because I'm not willing to work 60 hours. I can't. I cannot work 60 hours a week anymore. But that is often the expectation. I'll put my hand up and say during these periods of time, I rely on taking medication. Otherwise, I would fall over. But yeah. that's unsustainable for long mm-hmm. periods of time. And exactly. yeah, taking a break sometimes feels like letting down the team. And you're right, that is not the community that we set out to build. So I think that's pretty much the hottest take you could have had. <laughs> Look, I'm incredibly um, influenced by... Leah Lakshmi Peepsness in Marasina's work and, you know, their book care work is just essential reading. Like it is just essential reading to think about how we do this in a way that honours our bodies, that honours the way our brains work, that honours all of it. Like how do we do that? And, you know, they've got such heart and soul about how they talk about working in community and, and it's one of those things that I think about a lot. Um, we can only do this together. We can't do this by ourselves. So how do we make it so that for all of us it is sustainable? Because at the moment it isn't. It depends on so few of us that it isn't sustainable. So we have to do a better job. I don't, still don't know how yet. but We'll um, work it out together. 100%. Yeah. Yeah, well, this is just like 
it gives me the energy and fills my cup of every Friday afternoon chat with you, Elle. Um, we do these long chats all the time um, and I hope that you know that you are a campaigner that I look up to more than anyone else in the disability community um, as someone who has created momentous change and does not get the the warmth and the congratulations that you often deserve for your work. So I'm incredibly proud to call you my friend and my fellow comrade in campaigning. Um, Thank and you, let's change Ellie. the world together. 100%. And yeah. yes, very proud of all of the work that you're doing and uh, was cheering you on on Q&A last night as you gave it to Robert. That was excellent. <laughs> Look, yeah, uh, he had it coming, didn't he? He did. But hopefully mm-hmm. we can uh, encourage more folks to come into this world and we've got a lot of change to make. So, yeah, yeah let's do it. And it, it is a hell of a lot of fun. Like we do. we Some of these Friday afternoon chats are just hysterical laughter because it's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. So, yes, we talk about it being hard, but it's a fun, fun way to live a life sometimes. Sure is, my friend. All right. Talk soon. Thank you so much. You've been listening to an interview during which writer and campaigner Elle Gibbs shared their thoughts and experiences regarding campaigning for social change with interviewer Ellie Day Marshallia. This was the first in the Commons Conversation series produced by the Commons Social Change Library for Community Radio 3CR. Well, brothers and sisters, what a show of strength we've got here today. Local issues. So I'm here at the school, kids strike for climate action. Live coverage. Join the, the spirit of this gathering here today at IMARC. Your voices. So give us a bit of a lowdown about what's happening. There's about 200, 200 people here at the moment. Community struggles. We're now in front of the uh, Tundaminawaya Mulbohina Monument. I'd like to thank Community Radio 3CR, who for the last decade has been broadcasting here. Feed Radical Radio, your membership is vital. A few hundred people about to pass us right now. Lots of young people standing up for their future. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377.